So let's read it. Mark chapter 2, 1 to 17. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that Jesus was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the lake, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, let's pray as we study this uh, passage together. Our Father, we pray that as Christians we might be reminded for our encouragement just how powerful the gospel is. Remind us that we might be bold in telling the gospel, the gospel that forgives sins, thus reconciling men and women to God, the gospel that has forgiven our sins and reconciled us to God. Remind us of the power of the gospel. And we pray for any here who are not yet convinced Christians, that they might become Christians even this morning. For as the gospel is spoken, the Holy Spirit is at work, and therefore the power of the gospel to save, to convert, is at work amongst us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Over the past number of weeks in church life, it has been encouraging to see the power of the gospel at work, the power of the gospel at work in bringing people to faith in Jesus. It has been encouraging to see a number of people, I can think of three in particular, who have been clearly converted. And you will hear in time their testimonies. And I want to tell you that they have been converted, not that we may, might be puffed up, and there is a risk of that, not that we might think that all of a sudden our techniques have fallen into place and that our persuasive rhetoric is sharper and got an edge to it. There is a risk when someone is converted that we do think that. 
And having said that, we need to acknowledge that all the glory in the gospel and all the glory for anything the gospel achieves, whether it is somebody's conversion or whether it is a Christian's deepening of faith, is God's. I was saying to Chris and Abby in our first service who had their little girl Iris dedicated, that they will realize as they bring up their children that salvation is all of God. That conversion is not down to what we say and do. We give God all the glory for what has happened in these three people's lives. There is a risk that we think it's down to us, but surely with that risk acknowledged, it would be wrong for us to ignore as a church or not to rejoice in times when people become Christians. In time, as I said, God willing, you will be able to hear their testimonies, testimonies to the power of the gospel. And we need to be reminded of the power of the gospel that we be encouraged that the gospel is still at work in people's lives. Christianity Explored begins again tomorrow in the morning and tomorrow evening as we study Mark's gospel. People we must believe, will become Christians. We can Wednesday quench again at Costa Coffee. As I said, the last time we held quench, somebody came with questions at the end of a long journey. They wanted to ask some questions. Somebody else in the room asked the questions. They listened to the answers. The answers were not for the person as much who asked the question, but the person who wanted to ask the questions. And they were exactly the answers that led them to the point, for whatever reason, and God only knows, that they trusted in Jesus. I think that uh, all too often I've preached on evangelism And I've stood up here and I've heard the preacher, which has been me, preach to me and say, you need to be bolder with your friends and ask them. Now, there is some truth in that, and I would not want to deny that. But what I want us to grasp isn't so much that, but what I want us to grasp is the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel is at work in ways that sometimes we see and sometimes we don't see. It's not about us going home today and suddenly inviting 20 people to quench or Christianity explore tomorrow night. It's about our confidence in what God may be doing in people's lives and our sensitivity that if he is, we just grasp the nettle. The person that came to quench and had their questions answered was invited by somebody at the end of a long relationship of discussion and inquiry. It was a natural thing wasn't a kind of forced thing. It wasn't, here's my list, who am I going to ask? It's just a natural response to what God was doing in somebody's life. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a convinced Christian. Almost certainly there are such people here this morning, and you feel compelled to understand the gospel, to ask questions. Then come tomorrow morning or tomorrow night, you will be welcome. And uh, maybe you want to read the Bible one-on-one with somebody. It's happening in a number of contexts across the church family. Ask if you would want to do that. Invite, ask. And let me just underscore this. Never, ever 
on the basis of your own ability or rhetoric or persuasive abilities to answer this question or the other, for you will never, ever, I've often said in the past, feel equipped. Let me just say it a different way. You will never be equipped. You never are equipped. Because God is sovereign and salvation matters. Now, with that uh, kind of preface, uh, let me work through a number of things this passage teaches us, and you'll see some headings inside the service sheet. Firstly, I want us to see or be reminded that the gospel is a message that is spoken. The gospel is a message that is spoken. And there's all sorts of views out there as to what the gospel is. Is the gospel what we do? I want to say no. I want to say that what Mark teaches us is that the gospel is a message that is spoken. And the first two chapters of Mark's gospel focus on the ministry of Jesus. And the priority of Jesus' ministry, and Mark makes this crystal clear to us, is speaking or preaching the gospel. Jesus has something to say. Now, he has things to do, but primarily, Jesus has something to say. Just look back with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Let me read that. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate or a lonely place, and there he prayed. Uh, whenever there is uh, prayer recorded in Mark's gospel, it is a decision point. Jesus prayed, Simon and those who were with him searched for Jesus, and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you, implied in Peter's words, everyone is looking for you to do the things they want you to do. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also for that is what I have come for. And Jesus tells them and sets his own heart that the priority in his own ministry is speaking the gospel. He is a message to speak. And Jesus is the primary reference or example for every church, for every minister, for every Christian. Our priority is his priority. The gospel is a message that is spoken. And let me come at that from a slightly different angle. To say that the gospel is a message that is spoken implies that the gospel is not anything else. It is not, for example, stuff that we do, albeit that is good and often necessary. It is not stuff that we do for people. It is what we say to people. The stuff that we do for people is a consequence of the impact of the gospel in our lives. The gospel, if it's true and changes us, liberates us to do stuff or to serve people in ways that we have never done. But it's not the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel or the consequences of the gospel's impact on somebody's life. The gospel is a message that is spoken. What we do for somebody, 
practically see as an expression of the gospel's impact on our life may also be the ground breaker that allows you then to speak the gospel. We heard on our prayer time on Tuesday night of the work of Switch in the Gracemount area of the city. They run something similar to our impact group for teenagers in Gracemount. We run impact. Impact is not the gospel. Impact is a context where youngsters can come and have fun, which is great, and meet Christians, but the gospel is what they are told, what is said to them. Jesus said, preach the gospel, and words are always necessary. That uh, is, uh, I guess, a quote that reminds us of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, who said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Evangelical Christians say that he was wrong all of the time, and he was wrong, but he was a wonderful man. Just remember that. And Assisi is an amazing place. But he was wrong. What, what, what his ministry was crying out for. And he did wonderful things. By way of care and compassion. For those in great need. What was missing. Was an explanation of the gospel with words. Why is... The gospel, a message that is spoken because, one, God is a speaking God. God brings something out of nothing by speaking always, creation. In the beginning there was God and God said, God said all the way through Genesis 1 and things came into being, creation. Jesus begins his public ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, by doing what? Speaking. Jesus' time was demanded of him in all sorts of other ways. What did he resolve to do in the verses we read? Halfway through Mark chapter 1, he prayed for clarity as to what the priority in his ministry was, and that was speaking the gospel. The apostles' ministry was speaking the gospel. The church in the world, our little community of faith, can and needs to do many things. You cannot expect the youngsters who come to Intact to hear the gospel if you do not run a youth club for them. I think that's fair and sensible. But the gospel is a message in the end that always is to be spoken. Now, it begs the question, secondly, what is the message we are to speak? What is the content of the message? And here's the answer to that. The gospel is at its heart or at its root or at its center the forgiveness of sins. You see the clarity that these evangelists like Mark bring. What is 
the gospel? Answer one, it is a message that is spoken. Don't confuse that with the necessary stuff that we do. At the heart, the gospel is a message that is spoken. What is that message? What is the content of what we say? What is the content of what we need to say to these kids at impact? What is the content of what we need to say in answers to questions at Quench or Christianity Explored or on Sundays or in our conversations one-on-one? At the heart of it, it is the forgiveness of sins. That is the good news we are to tell the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you are thinking that the forgiveness of sins is perhaps a dissonant message or a provocative message, you're quite right, it is. One of the people who has been converted recently, I had the privilege of marrying two weeks ago. He wouldn't mind me telling you this. As he spoke in his vows and in other ways that day of his faith in Jesus... And as I spoke to those gathered of their faith in Jesus, somebody in that wedding service became a Christian. At the end, for them, of a long, long journey. They just happened to be there that day. And what Ed said about his faith made them want to have the confidence he had found. And so they believed almost testing God as to whether the confidence he had found would be theirs to find if they believe. And they found it. And they believe. That's great, isn't it? But there were plenty of people at that wedding whose hackles went up as I explained the gospel as well. You could just see it. You could see the bristling. The gospel is a message that is spoken. The gospel is about forgiveness of sins. Let me persuade you from the text of Mark that the gospel at its heart is the forgiveness of sins. So follow with me, chapter 2, verse 1. And if this story is awfully familiar to you, pretend you've never heard it, okay? Let it come fresh to you. One of the devil's tactics, I think, is to make the most astonishing stories in the Bible familiar to us. This is amazing what happens here. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home and many were gathered there so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Imagine South Hall here, jam-packed full, such that there were so many people. It's a health and safety nightmare. Okay, there's no room at the door to get in. Yep. Stifling hot. It's jam-packed. And the door is blocked. It takes real ingenuity on the part of these four men to get their friend to Jesus that he might be healed. And you've got to hand it to them. It's a fantastic way of getting Jesus to notice and everybody else in the room to stop thinking about themselves and thinking about this man. They go up onto the roof and they cut a hole and down comes this man on his mat. You can imagine Jesus preaching the word. What's he doing? And he's preaching the word. He's preaching the gospel in that room. And he's about to just make it crystal clear to us what the gospel is. And 
Jesus is preaching and dust begins to fall. And of course, Jesus would have looked up, everyone else would have looked up, and he would have stopped speaking. And down comes this man on his mat. I suspect that some people in the room would have known who this man was. He was a paralytic. That means he was paralyzed, quadriplegic, maybe. Now, you know and I know today that when a soldier is injured and they You've seen one or two, perhaps, of these programs on television of these wonderful places that rehabilitate service men and women who have been paralyzed. But the very best of modern medical science cannot heal them. And our hearts go out to them. In the 21st century world, these are some of the bleakest things we can see. And in the 1st century world, that man would have nothing, nothing by way of help. Surely Jesus, and Mark wants us, and Jesus, I think, wants us to conclude that Jesus should do the obvious and heal him. If I say to you as a preacher, surely there is no greater need than this man's terrible physical condition. If you're a Christian, you will know that there is a deeper need. That is his forgiveness. You know the answer to that. But try to feel the reality of this with me. As you look at this man in his helpless, helpless physical state. Think of the bleakest human condition or the person you know who is suffering the most in the world. Is there anything that is of greater need than that? And do not allow your heart to be devoid of any compassion as you come to that conclusion. There is no one more compassionate that has ever lived than the Lord Jesus for the physical plight of humanity. And yet Jesus says something to this man that is radical and searching because there is a deeper need. There is a more dire need than this man's physical healing. What does Jesus do? He preaches the word of the gospel to this man as he lies on the mat at his feet. Son, your sins are forgiven. Why is that this man's greatest need? Because what Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven, removed from him at that moment the judgment of God upon him for all of eternity. And yes, Jesus would come, as we'll see, to heal his paralysis, to demonstrate his authority as God in a few minutes. But that man one day would lie down on a mat again and die. But his sins were forgiven. And he no longer lived under the estrangement and the judgment of God. The gospel is a message that is to be spoken. And the message we are to speak is a message that you can be forgiven of your sins. And what a wonderful message that is because of what it does in reconciling humanity to God. And there is no lack of compassion in Jesus' heart. Rather, there is a depth of compassion that does for this man what he most of all needs. Jesus calls him son. A hint there, perhaps, that to be forgiven brings one into the family of God. 
the message of forgiveness of sins. Now, over the coming weeks in Christianity Explored, we'll read Mark's Gospel. A week tomorrow, we'll go on to chapter 2. One week into a course on evangelism, a course on the gospel, one week in, say somebody who has never heard the gospel before, one week in, one week in, you tell them what is the most provocative thing they may have ever heard. Their sins need forgiven. Surely we should put Mark chapter 2 further on in the book. Let's get to the stuff. Let's get to Mark chapter 4. Jesus calms the storm, or he heals the demoniac, or he heals the woman with an incurable illness, or he raises the dead child to death. Let's convince people that this man is God, and then we'll let them hear that their sins need forgiven. Why does Mark do it the other way around? Because when you say to somebody, your sins need forgiven, when you say to somebody the gospel, we must not doubt that in explaining the gospel, the power of God is manifest at that point. It's powerful. It converts people. It's real. And God wants us to know that it will always be too early to get to Mark chapter 2 in your gospel conversations. It'll always be too provocative to say to somebody that their sins need forgiven. It'll always be the wrong time. It'll always be one more bit of explanation away. It'll always be, humanly speaking, needing to be prefaced by some stuff that you should really listen to this man. But Mark puts it right at the head of his gospel because he knows when In Christianity Explored, we read Mark chapter 2. The power of the Holy Spirit picks up his sword that is the Word of God and does something that is supernatural and powerful and cuts straight to the heart of somebody's spiritual conviction. So don't take Mark's gospel and chop it up and get it the other way around. Have the confidence in the Bible. Forgiveness of sins. Now, the gospel is a message that is spoken. The gospel is forgiveness of sins. The gospel is forgiveness through Christ alone. How are our sins forgiven through Christ alone? Now, verse 6. Some of the religious leaders who were there question Jesus in their hearts. Uh, They're not saying it out loud. It's great. There's a bit of comedy here and humor. They They were grumbling in their hearts. And Jesus, of course, sees into their hearts. And then he speaks out loud about what they were saying inside. They're thinking, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're right in their analysis. Only God can forgive sins. But they're not godly in their analysis of Jesus. What irked them isn't so much this logical conclusion that only God can forgive sins. What irked them, I think, is the rug was being pulled out from under their religious feet and saying, you have no part in forgiving anyone's sins. Only God can. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. I was saying to Chris and Abby in the first service, one of the dangers when you are explaining the gospel to children is that children will immediately default to think that the gospel is something that they need to believe in because they're mum or dad. It's their thing. It's their truth. It's their gospel. It's not. It's Jesus you've got to point them to. Away from us to Jesus. 
Forgiveness is through Christ alone. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he says to them, he says, try to picture this in your minds. Jesus kind of looks away from the man. He looks over to the religious leaders in the corner and probably to many other people in the room who are thinking the same thing. And he, he says to them, okay, which is it easier for someone to say? A, your sins are forgiven. Or B, get up and walk out of this room. Which is easier? It's not a, a hard question to answer. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because how do you know? It's hard to say get up and walk because you're going to know if that person has any authority. It's much harder to say, son, your sins are forgiven and believe it's true. So what does Jesus do next? He says this, and it's astonishing what he says. But that you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Or, but that you may know that I am God. I'm going to do something that nobody in the 21st century, 2,000 years from now, the very best of medical science, is ever going to be able to pull off. I'm going to take a man who is quadriplegic and I'm going to make him stand up and walk out of this room. Now, if you are familiar with this stuff, rob your heart of all the familiarity and just get this. It's so powerful what he does. But that you may know that I am the only person who has ever lived in history who can do this kind of stuff because I am God. But that you may know. He turned back to the man away from the religious doubters in the corner and the crowd. And he said to the man, he said, come on then, up you get and walk out and go to your house. And that man, that quadriplegic man, got up And he walked out. And Mark, with his typical brevity and understatement, said, it amazed them all and they glorify God. Why did they glorify God? They glorify God. I think they got it wrong. They glorify God out of fear because the man got up and walked out. The true cause for glorifying God in Mark chapter 2 is the fact that that man's sins were forgiven. Because that man one day would lie down in a mat and die again. But for all eternity... His sins were forgiven. It's such a make-or-break bit, this, in Christianity Explorer, when you read Mark's Gospel with people, your sins are forgiven, humanity's deepest need, but that you may know that I have authority, Jesus says, to forgive sins. He says to that man, get up and walk out of the room. The true reason to glorify God is that the man's sins were forgiven. Now, who is forgiveness for? Well, of course, forgiveness is for everybody. Everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody will receive forgiveness if they believe in Jesus. But God so very often takes us by surprise. He converts people we just think it's beyond his ability to convert. Or he converts people we just think are not going to be interested. Or he sometimes even converts people we don't want to be converted because we don't like them. Or they're not like us. Last week I was in another church in Edinburgh at the end of our holiday. It's great to go to another church and if you're a minister what you do is you go along and when nobody's looking you take every possible leaflet you can find and see what they do better than us. And they, they had a boy who was uh, baptized, 
last Sunday, and his family were all there. And he was, and his family was, as different in terms of background and culture and all the stuff that our society does to make people live in separate lives. He was as different from the church family as you could possibly get. And we saw before our eyes this, this, this wonderful thing. And I, I, I bet they all rejoiced in it, but I just have a little bit of suspicion that in my heart, that if that was here, they would have just had to work a little bit hard to come to terms with the fact that somebody very unlike them had been converted. And they had, and it was wonderful. Now, Levi um, makes this point very powerfully for us. Forgiveness is for unlikely people. Let me read it. Verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the lake and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Um, These headings in our uh, Bibles are really unhelpful. Yeah? The heading in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus heals a paralytic. He does, but that's not the point of what Mark is saying. They were added later. Yes, he heals the man, but the heading should be Jesus forgives his sins. And then you get another heading, Jesus calls Levi, as if there's something to separate these two passages in our Bibles. You see what Mark is trying to do? He's trying to build up a logic. The gospel is a message. The message is forgiveness. Forgiveness is through Christ alone. The next question, well, who's going to respond to this message? Answer, Levi and people like him. Levi worked for the Inland Revenue in the ancient world. And whereas today the Inland Revenue is there um, to sort out crooks in the ancient world, they were the crooks. They were a rum lot, these tax collectors, and they were the least likely candidates for conversion. And if you were one of the other disciples, like Peter and James and John, walking down that road as Jesus was preaching the gospel, and suddenly Jesus, your master, pinpoints this man in the crowd, Levi, and says, you, Levi, follow me. Peter, I'm sure would have had something to say, Jesus, why on earth are you asking him? Peter would think, He's too far gone. He's not going to be interested. And even if he is, we don't want him. He's not like us. And the point of all of this is forgiveness is for unlikely people. Now, it teaches us all sorts of things. Let me highlight one or two things. The first is this. You just would not think a man like Levi could be converted. He's too far gone. He's too intellectually sophisticated. He has too many arguments, too many barriers, too much in his family, too much in his past to say that he will ever respond to the simple message of the gospel. Levi was converted. Encourages us. Now, I think the conclusion, there is no way this person will be converted, often comes home to us in our lives very personally. People we know very dearly, people who are our closest friends, we just think are a hundred miles away, they can be converted. They often are, like Levi. Second, you just would not think a man like Levi would be interested at all. And, and, and there is no suggestion that Levi uh, had a conversation with his wife that morning and he said, dear over the conflicts, I feel that my conscience is pricking me and I need to turn my life around. I suspect that Levi had, had no inclination that day that, that uh, he was going to respond to Jesus. And yet, what did he hear? He heard the gospel. And the gospel, because it's supernatural and powerful, did the unthinkable and convinced him he did want to follow Jesus. So when you explain the gospel to somebody... 
There is really the human probability they will respond, but they do because the gospel is powerful. And I, I guess an application of that is that those we invite or think about inviting to this, that, and the other or explaining the gospel with are not often or always, sometimes they are, but often they are not the obvious people who respond. And then third, as I said, we need as a church always to be willing and glad and rejoicing to see people interested, converted, who are not like us, and even people we don't, uh, we don't like. You know, there's a little bit on the edge of our world as a church here which is if you go into where the hub is and you go up towards Southside, up towards Old College, you come into what is an area of the city with the highest footfall of immigrant population, just people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds. I just love us, love us to get our hearts into these kind of communities. Young people, old people. People unlike us. Unlikely people. Now, fifth, finally, forgiveness means following and fellowship. Follow me, Jesus said to Levi. And Levi's response, he got up and followed Jesus. Having received forgiveness, having been converted, the Christian life is a life of following Jesus, living for Jesus, following after Jesus. And following Jesus means, above all other things, telling the gospel. Forgiveness means following, following means telling the gospel. How do we know? Well, there are two things about Levi that tell us that following means telling the gospel primarily. Levi became the disciple we know as Matthew. Same man, Matthew. What did Matthew do? Matthew wrote a gospel. Levi wrote a gospel. That is him telling the gospel. And all through the centuries, people have preached the gospel from the gospel. Levi, this man who wrote. Now, God is not expecting us or calling us to write a gospel. If you start writing a gospel and uh, start spreading it around, the elders will be on to you. Levi had a special task in telling, didn't he, Matthew? But he had a very normal and real and ordinary and powerful and, uh, task that we can all... What did he do here on day one after he followed Jesus? He invited his fellow inland revenue rogues and other people he knew who were sinners to his house to meet Jesus to hear the gospel. That's what he did. He invited his friends. You know, when you see a genuine conversion, what is the evidence of that? Let me single out Ed. He's not here. He's gone back down to his army base. Don't tell him I'm going to tell you this. What did we see in Ed when he became a Christian? Every week after he became a Christian, he brought somebody with him. That's striking. It's very, very common and authentic. Those of you who were involved in the CU missions here, let me let you into a secret. When you get your CU guests, these are the guys that work the ground, yeah? Don't look for people who are long experienced Christians who've got all the answers to all the apologetics questions. Look for people who become Christians in the last few months. And they're everywhere. After people. Telling the gospel. In all 
three cases of the people we've seen become Christians recently. The weeks after they have become Christians, they have always come and they've had somebody with them. Why on earth is that? Because following means telling. What did Levi do? He invited his friends to the house so they could meet Jesus. Verse 15, and as Levi reclined at a table in his house, many of his mates from the inland revenue and sinners, other sinners like them, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. Notice these words. There were many who followed. Many became Christians. He brought his friends to hear the gospel. And that's what Jesus wants us to do and would love us to do. Bring your friends to church, to Christianity, explore, to quench. Which means, of course, we need friends who aren't Christians. Befriend people. Quietly let God work away in their lives. Invite them to your home. You know, we've often encouraged you to, I've encouraged myself, and you invite a couple who are Christians and a couple who aren't Christians to your home for dinner. And you kind of, as the evening goes on, just look for the opportunity for that pithy gospel comment. <laughs> My experience of that is when you inject it in, you get 20 minutes of silence and awkwardness and everyone leaves. Here's a tip for you. Drop the conversation uh, in and then leave the room to your guests, Christians and non-Christians, to chat together. That's a good tactic. You see, having Christians and non-Christians together in your home isn't about trying to find the moment to awkwardly engineer in the gospel comment. It's just the confidence that when you bring people who are Christians and non-Christians together... That God in his sovereignty is able and will do and is doing things that are beyond your ability to understand, make happen, or work. When the person came to quench and had their questions answered and became a Christian, what, what was behind all of that? Just somebody who had the instincts and the savvy at the right time in a conversation, in a relationship, in a knowledge, in a friendship they had with this person to say, there's a quench event which you can go to in Costa Coffee where people will ask questions and you can ask questions. That's it. And somebody was converted. One of the groups we lack in church life is elderly people. We're trying to run these uh, contexts like a uh, young retired group. Let me say to you if you're young retired, I want you to go to that group and relish time together with other Christians in this church. But I want you to see it as an opportunity to invite people along to. Last time, I think the group went to the botanics. Spent a lot of time in the coffee shop. It's great. There's a coffee shop theme here. I have a hunch. If you are young, retired, and you invite your friend to come to the botanics to have coffee with some friends, they might just come. Then you can invite them to church. Or we run monthly services on a Sunday afternoon for elderly people. Who do we know in our families? Who do we know in our streets who's elderly? Some of us do. It's not about 
going around this afternoon ringing their doorbell and saying, will you come on such and such a day? It's a, it's a kind of vigilance to the possibility and the probability that God might well be at work in their lives to open up the ground for them to come. Forgiveness means following, following means telling, and forgiveness also means fellowship with God. In that wonderful little prototype here in Mark chapter 2 of the church, what was the church? The church is a bunch of fellow forgiven sinners muddling along together trying to make their group bigger by having more fellow forgiven sinners join them. That's what the church is. Notice in Mark chapter 2, there are no committees. One of the features of our first service this morning is that, see these lovely flowers here? One of the great liberties we find as a church, we don't have a flower committee anymore. They were great, but it's good not to have a flower committee. What happens now is that somebody gets flowers in Tesco or Asda and they bring them in and put them in a vase and just plunk them down. It's easy peasy stuff. There's no committees here in Mark chapter 2. It's just people in a home listening to Jesus, sharing the gospel. Let's never lose that liberty, spontaneity, naturalness, reality. That's the church. Fellowship, when you become a Christian, vertical reconciliation and horizontal, fellow forgiven sinners. And we don't all like each other all the time, do we? We just can't. We're human beings. In glory, we'll all love each other completely. But we're all united as Christians in a church family with that one leveling status, fellow forgiven sinners. It's like the inland revenue of the ancient world having a new club together when they've all seen that they're sinful people and need forgiveness. That's who we are. That's who we are. It's like the person who said to one of my friends in London, you Christians in your church are just a bunch of hypocrites. And he answered them, somebody he'd been trying to share the gospel with, you're quite right, but there's always room for one more. That's exactly right, isn't it? That's exactly right. We're just a bunch of fellow forgiven sinners who've realized that forgiveness is found in Jesus. So there we go. The power of the gospel, Mark 2, 1 to 17. The gospel is a message that is spoken. It's forgiveness of sins, Christ alone, unlikely people. It means following and fellowship. Let me say this as we close. There's something else I've not mentioned in this passage, or at least not much, and it's friction. The friction, the antagonism against Jesus in this passage from the religious leaders, they're bristling. Why are they bristling? They're bristling because God forgives people's sins. They're bristling because they have no role in the forgiveness of sins. They're bristling because they realize their sins need forgiven, maybe. They're bristling when Jesus forgives Levi. Why him? There is always friction, always opposition to the gospel in its advance. There will always be obstacles to hearing the gospel. There will always be friction. And the friction we see here in Mark 2 led Jesus to a cross. Which, of course, is the means by which he achieves forgiveness. People seldom get to the point of faith without friction. Ed, who's become a Christian, did not get to the point where he stood on his wedding day 
And in his marriage vows, very powerfully conveyed his faith in Jesus without plenty friction on the road. You will never lead somebody. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to lead somebody to faith. You will never lead them to faith and to the cross without friction on that road. But friction is precisely the atmosphere of conversion. Now, my, uh, here's another ministry uh, phrase that people use <laughs> earlier. Is there a deeper need than this man's physical, forgive, physical healing? Of course there is. And you try to feel the reality of that. Here's a phrase that ministers use. My dear friends, I love you in the Lord. Let me say that to you with all the sincerity of the fact that it's true. And I would love us as a church. I would love me as a minister. I'd love us to believe more in the power of the gospel. I'd love us to believe that these three people who have been converted are not a flash in the plan and just God at work. I'd love us to walk around this community and along the road to Southside into that multi-diverse and multi-ethnic community. Just look at the shops along that road. There are people there from all over the world. I love us to walk past them on the streets and believe that the power of the gospel can invade their lives in a mighty powerful way. Because the greatest need in this city is not strategy or new church buildings or programs or this, that, and the other. The greatest need in this city is the power of the gospel at work in unconverted people's lives. And what God whispers to us, and we'll see this in Isaiah, is he wants his communities of faith, particularly when they are no longer worried about how you put flowers in a vase. When they have that liberty from all that stuff to believe with all their hearts in the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us as a community of faith to believe with all our hearts in the power of the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be clear that the gospel is a message that is spoken, what that message is, who that message points to. And help us, therefore, to say the gospel to people, explain it clearly, point people to Jesus. Help us to remember it's for all sorts of people, the gospel. The people that we think will not respond often do. The people that we think are too far gone to respond often respond. The people that we think are not interested might not be interested, but when the gospel is explained to them, they come up against a supernatural power that just blows their disinterest and their questions away like cobwebs. Why is that? Because the gospel is powerful. Thank you that forgiveness means following, and that following means speaking, and that forgiveness also means fellowship. Lord, this road is not friction-free, but we pray that if we experience friction in leading people to Jesus, that will convince us that the ground and the road upon which we walk and they walk with us is the real authentic road to conversion. And may many people in this community, in Southside, in this city, be clearly converted to Christ. And may those who have recently been converted grow and flourish in their faith and keep 
bringing their friends and show us what conversion does in somebody's life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.